You're listening to Afrobeat Radio, a public affairs program presenting African perspectives on global issues. I am Wuyi Jacobs. Our guest today is Ambassador Harriet Lee Elam Thomas. She talks to us about her new book, an autobiography, Diversifying Diplomacy, My Journey from Roxbury to Dakar, published by Potomac Books. And we'll also be talking about international diplomacy and more today. Ambassador Elam Thomas is a trailblazing black ambassador and a professor who continues to create history by developing a new generation of diverse diplomats. She has held numerous posts abroad over the course of her 42-year career, including positions in Greece, Turkey, Cyprus, France, Belgium, Mali, Senegal, and the Ivory Coast. She retired in 2005 from the U.S. State Department as a Senior Foreign Service Officer with the rank of Career Minister and currently directs the University of Central Florida Diplomacy Program. She joins us by phone. Welcome to Afrobeat Radio, Ambassador. Thank you ever so much. It is my pleasure to spend some time with you. It's a real pleasure to have you on Afrobeat Radio, especially on Black History Month, and we'll be talking about your wonderful book. Congratulations on that book, by the way. Thank you, and thank you for having clearly read it in its entirety. I'm very, very touched by that. Thank you. You're most welcome, ma'am. It was very well written. No dull moments, no excess diplomatic talk or academic language. The book is quite accessible, and I think candid in terms of your personal story, your upbringing, your humble but illustrious background, growing up to become a world-class diplomat and sophisticate. Perhaps a little too candid, but that's who I am. Well, it's quite impressive to me that you start the book proper with references to African societies and philosophy. You talk about the Zamani and the Sasha family. Uh, Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the Zamani and the Sasha family and why you chose to do that? Why is it important that you included that in your book? But it also figured in my West Africa experience. In essence, we must learn from the past to act wisely in the present to create a good future. And as my parents said over and over again, you need to know your history where you've been, your past, in order to know where you are going and how important it is to tie that into the origins of mankind, some of whom may not want to really completely acknowledge that, but we all, if anyone looks at Old Divide Gorge, we know that we come from Africa. So your book, Diversifying Diplomacy, as you've deduced, I, I read it in its entirety, And I mentally divided the book into two parts. The first part, the introduction, reads like a class on how to do diplomacy, like diplomatic studies. And then Mm -hmm. the second part of that book, that's the main body of the book itself, is like a workshop on diplomatic studies and life experiences. It struck me that you might have been thinking along those lines while you were developing and writing the book. Actually, I have my students to thank in the Honors Diplomacy College. I gave them the possibility of Secretary Clinton at that time coming to Senegal, and there was a cholera outbreak in the Gambia. Should the trip be canceled? Each and every one of the students, there are only 21 in the Honors class, they had to visit all the various options and justify their recommendations for actions as to whether or not the trip should continue. Now, you and I know that the Gambia is not the Senegal. It runs through Senegal. And others who are not that knowledgeable would wonder, well, is color going to be transferable the minute the secretary's plane lands in Dakar airport? Of course not. But these were things that seemed to truly energize my students. Or if there were an earthquake, or if there were a terrorist attack, What does one do? One does not read theory. One has to understand how to act in a crisis. 
And this is the reason why I felt it was important for students to have a realistic approach after the beginning of the book as to how I had to deal with issues like that or some that may not have been as life-threatening as having a bomb next to, in the car next to yours, etc. So you are absolutely right. I did intentionally divide the book in those two parts. But you are the first person who picked up on that, so bravo to you, sir. Thank you very much <laughs> for the credit. <laughs> well, also throughout the book, you give credit to a lot of people, family, mm. um, Clearly, your family was important to you. Yes. You were the last of, I think, two brothers and one sister, two or three brothers and one sister. Three brothers and one <clears throat> sister, and they were all 18, 19, and 20 years older than I. Exactly. So you were, for much of your life, the baby of the family. Yes. You also gave a lot of credit to your colleagues, people who showed you the way in many different ways. Um, mm-hmm. There's a particular story that I find quite interesting. You describe as you were in Paris and you had to go for your first diplomatic evening dinner or something. Oh, uh, yes. And you had to buy a, an evening gown. And, yes. Um, and your mother had always done your shopping for you. And here you yes. were confronted with that impossible choice of buying a... Two hundred and fifty dollar dress. It was a cocktail dress, and I was twenty three or twenty four years old. I was frightened to death. <laughs> <laughs> so, but someone named Mary Darty was in my life at that time, and she went with me to the Faubourg Saint Honoré, and she said, "This is going to be your evergreen dress." Now the dress was red, um, but it was a classic dress. And I never imagined, in 1965 or 66, $250 was probably the equivalent of $2,500 today. Mm-hmm. And even today, I would not be able to or even consider such a purchase. But she said, I will put it on my American Express card, because you are going to find much use for this dress. It was not, the Europeans do not throw away things. Their clothing is made to last for a long time. That's another lesson I learned. People don't have to change each day. Their things are classic, and they're not as concerned about being up-to-date in the latest fashion. They're more concerned about what you have of substance to offer to a conversation. And for a 23, 24-year-old, I think it was 24, that was important for me to learn. Mm -hmm. And the dress... I must have worn that dress to everything I went to for the next two and a half, three years in Paris. I was wondering if you still, if you ever kept the dress itself, if you still well, have it hanging somewhere. Well, you know, somewhere. I have, you'd think one would. I can't even find a picture of that dress, and I, I'm so frustrated. The thing is, the style has come back because it's classic, and I've seen similar things in stores today. Not a lot of ruffles and flourishes, a very classic A-line cut, but again, uh, a Parisian dress that would serve you for generations. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to have one at that time. So your fortunate experiences in many ways demonstrates for us that wise saying that it takes uh, oh. a, a village oh, to yes. raise a child. Yes. I actually use that as my opening when we launched the book at the well-known Dacor House in Washington, D.C. It is a National Historic Trust. It's the diplomatic and consular officers retired. That's what Dacor stands for. And the launch was successful to the point that they told me they had never had 174 people in that building for a book launch. And the largest number had been 80 participants. Well, I began saying it takes a village, and that village includes many of you in this room, white and black diplomats, which are predominantly white diplomats. And I was determined to have my friends and colleagues, not only from the diplomatic service, but from my lifetime and growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, after I left Boston, who could one, enter a building that is a national trust in an area where we might not frequent. 
So it was important for me to deliver the message to the audience that I did not come from privilege. My parents were very ordinary people. My mother was a domestic and my father was an automobile mechanic who had fled the segregated South to come north. And I also wanted them to know that there were men and women in my life and career who helped shape me to become who I am. And that was the village that I relied on then and still rely on now in terms of moral support when there is a crisis. I think that's a very important lesson for all of us, especially um, those of us who are much younger and uh, Mm -hmm. struggling through life. Uh, mm-hmm. struggling through finding a career path. There's something else that you took with you as well or that you learned from home, uh, many things actually. You also made it a cardinal principle not to look down on people who served you while you were at your duty posts. The help. You just made a reference to your mother as somebody who served that role in her life. Yes. Um, it seems that you literally dragged your parents and your upbringing along with you everywhere you went. I did, I did. Um, sometimes I think people thought I was overly conscious of people who were either cleaning our offices or who were taking care of children of those who had children and not always understanding when it was a religious holiday how important it was for them to be away and to allow that celebration to take place. I can honestly say that I have kept in touch, for instance, my driver in Senegal is now a citizen of the United States, as is his family, because not only I, but the ambassador before me made sure that they had the necessary financial support to make that visa application after the many years they had been in the United States. They saved the lives of each and every one of us. And you didn't have to be an ambassador. Anyone who got in a car with the driver who was Greek, who was Turkish, they were the ones who had to be fed well. I had a boss in Greece who did not seem to recognize the importance of making sure there was a dinner or some food for his driver. And that used to really set me off. And I would say to myself, how does he think he's going to get home safely if the person is lightheaded? Now, it's not in my enlightened self-interest. It's the fact that my grandfather was a chauffeur. Mm. So you're absolutely right. I dragged and carried them the lessons of my ancestors and my immediate family members who had been serving others throughout my career because they are human beings who must be acknowledged. And human beings that we must remain connected to in humility, in all humility. I will say one other thing, and that is I would often say to the staffers, wherever I was and when I was in Senegal, I went to the dispatcher's office in the supply room, and they didn't know what this ambassador was doing in this supply room. And I would say that if the parts for the car are not available, how can you get to the foreign ministry? You will not walk. You're not going to call a taxi. So you must be sure that you recognize the work that the mechanics do in the embassy car, in the embassy garage, and, and all of the areas, the warehouse. Some people think that a piece of furniture just appears in your house. No, how did it? it wasn't magic. Somebody had to work to get it there. Again, you're absolutely right. My parents' legacy stays with me to this day. A lesson and a value that I share, uh, and I'm, I congratulate you, uh, not just for the book, but for also maintaining those values and um, passing them on, I'm sure, to the next generation. Well, my students, uh, they probably got tired of me giving them lessons in humility. I would say to them, you're in this school. You have your high school friends that may not have been able to go to college. This is a state university. This is not an Ivy League school. But you should never forget those friends from high school because one day you may need them and they will be the only people who will come to your aid because others will forget you if you no longer have a high position. 
and I must have drilled that into each and every one of my classes. It may not have been as necessary because there are a lot of first-generation college-goers and a number of students from Latin America and the Caribbean because Florida is very close to that part of the world. Now, you spent time in Africa. How would you describe the bridge and the divide between how you were perceived and encountered by women of African descent during your time on the continent? Hmm, this is the first time I've thought about that. I think that I'll begin with my early time in Senegal. I served in Senegal in 1975 as a very junior diplomat, as a, the assistant cultural attaché at the embassy in Dakar. And I was wondering why, first of all, I didn't get direct eye contact from a number of my colleagues. And coming up as I did during the civil rights area and even before then, Many people of color never looked directly, never gave eye contact to anyone they perceived as being superior to them, and they were usually people who were white. And I, as a 27-year-old, or 20, that was 28 or 29 by then, I could not understand why people were not looking at me until I recognized that they were doing this out of respect, not because they were being forced not to look at me the way I had grown up. You see where cultural baggage is important? Mm -hmm. I was looking at the situation only from my growing up in the United States. And the other was, as a person of color, I had to learn not to think I had the keys to the kingdom. My history was far less significant than anyone I met on the continent of Africa who had members of their family who were people who were chiefs and from royalty. And of course, I didn't learn that in the Boston public schools. And so I had to um, ratchet back my sense of self, which was a very good thing. It's amazing. Even though I, yes, I was humble and I remembered my parents' lesson, I still thought, boy, I'm a brand new cultural attache in this office, and I thought that I really knew all there was to know about America when, in fact, many of my colleagues in Senegal, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Mali, knew more about America than I did in its history. Mm -hmm. So the perceptions were very, very different. Um, people would say to me, why aren't there more? We were Negroes and then blacks, then Afro-Americans, and then African-Americans. That's through the 42 years I was in and out of the United States, out of the country for 35 years. So I went through the various permutations of the nomenclature as to who I was. But my skin was always the same color. It didn't change any time. So I knew who I was. But I have to say that I learned not to assume that I was going to be welcomed with open arms because my skin was brown and not necessarily black. Um, I was an American first in their eyes, an African or Negro second. What they saw first was the cultural heritage that I brought that was not the same as theirs. I didn't have that same sense of pride. My heritage was one of slavery and indentured slaves, and nothing to be terribly proud of. So I didn't carry myself quite the way that those of us from Trinidadian or Caribbean descent do. My husband is from Trinidad, and I have to say much of the attraction was the sense of pride with which this man carried himself from the moment I met him. Mm -hmm. So that's a long answer to how I was perceived. Um, as time went on, I was perceived with respect because I had done my homework. Yes, 90% of my colleagues in the diplomatic corps were males. Most of the ministers that I dealt with in Senegal and Mali and Cote d'Ivoire were men. There were a few women, and they, of course, were ministers of gender affairs or minister of health or education. But I learned to be able to carry myself with a certain amount of dignity but not arrogance. And I learned to respect their culture 
which was hard for a very talkative woman who would often not know when to stop speaking. But I learned that I had to conform to the norms, where the eldest spoke first whenever one was in a group setting. And all of that was a very, very sobering, but a very important lesson for this young diplomat to learn. You're listening to Afrobeat Radio. I am Rui Jacobs, and I'm talking to Ambassador Harriet Lee Elam Thomas, the author of a wonderful autobiography, Diversifying Diplomacy. You write in the introduction to Diversifying Diplomacy, and I quote, cultural competence bring much broader perspective of the United States, which is critical to enhancing mutual understanding in the world, end quote. There are two sides to this question. The first is that United States' goals doesn't always feel like it's enhancing mutual understanding in the world, certainly mm-hmm. not when one considers the concept of American essentialism or what one can term as the militarization of American foreign policy. How can you help us understand what appears to be an apparent contradiction? I will begin by saying America that one views on the media is not the complete face of this nation. And yes, there is a lot of attention placed on military might and Defense Department budgets. But there is also a misperception, not only abroad, but in the United States, of what American diplomats do what any diplomat does, because we, as diplomats, do not have a constituency in the United States. Every American has some relative who went to war, whether it was the first, second Korean War, Vietnam, and now Afghanistan and Iraq. They have military bases in communities, so they recognize what a uniform looks like. There's no specific uniform for a diplomat. And so because we don't have a constituency, or we're doing better now, and most Americans, even the most educated, are not completely conversant with what the role is of an American who is working in an embassy abroad. Yes, they think visas are important, and that's only reason why they're there. They don't understand that we have to work with our host nations to gain their support, whether it is on a U.N. vote or whether it is on a new initiative in terms of human rights issues. Uh, It is very interesting that every general who came to see me would say, we want you to succeed so that we do not have to come in and go to war. And yet everything that we hear in the media, not just this administration, and many other administrations as well, but certainly more right now, is an emphasis on military might and military spending. The Defense Department budget is so much greater than the State Department's. It's a travesty. But that's been the history as long as I can remember. And the contradiction that you talk about is indeed real, and that's why diplomats have to work doubly hard to turn that around and help others understand that what they're seeing in the media is not the true America. The second part of that question, President Trump was recently quoted as calling Haiti, El Salvador, and African countries as asshole countries. What's your comment on that, and how does a diplomat even deal with the fallout of that? Well, first of all, I was one of the 48 signatories to a letter we sent four weeks ago when this comment was made. 48 of the 70-some U.S. ambassadors who had served, we sent the letter, actually I have a copy here, on January 16th. We expressed our deep concern regarding the reports about African countries and wanted to remind the head of state that there are 54 individual nations. Three ambassadors I know, Senegal, Botswana, and South Africa, were called to the presidency to explain this comment. Now, I can honestly say to you, that I would have had to speak my conscience 
I could not have condoned those comments. I would have reminded our hosts that I recognize that Africa is a home to 1.2 billion people, and there are members who, of their societies, who've won Nobel Prizes in chemistry and literature and won in peace. Uh, Nigeria has an incredible film industry. South Africa's peaceful transition from apartheid is a model for nations worldwide. And Egypt, many people forget it's on the continent, includes a quarter of the Arab world's population. And then you go to Rwanda and you hear about the way in which genocide has been well, we, there's been a reconciliation, not quite a Truth and Reconciliation Council, but something similar to that. I would not have been able to condone these comments. And if I were asked to leave, I would have done that. During your time in Africa, you witnessed a number of African countries come to rather challenging periods, including the Rwandan genocide, the death of the UNITA leader Jonas Savimbi, the, mm-hmm. the deposing of General Sonia Bacha, and the mm-hmm. rise of a new class of capitalists across the continent. What event stands out amongst the seismic events that you have witnessed and observed? I would say the election of Mandela. Um, I watched, because colleagues of mine who had been my assistants in Turkey went to be observers of the election, and I watched the lines of people waiting to vote. I witnessed a person who had absolutely no visible signs of bitterness who had been in prison for 26 and a half or 27 years. Uh, Yes, I've seen other important things happen in Africa, but that was the one moment in my career that made me so proud to be alive. Now, you didn't ask this, but I will say to you, I have been disappointed in seeing heads of state who have become these capitalists who don't quite understand when to step down Mm -hmm. and who are still in power. Wad was one of those who, when I met with him, said, oh, I will only serve one term. And as we now know, he would like to have had his son succeed him. As I witness what has transpired across the board, with the exception of places like Ghana, I see the, the, the... tendency that once one is in power to hold on to it. Um, That disturbs me. It Mm. truly does. And I find it hard to understand how can you forget the promises you've made to the populace. Mm. It's, um, yeah, it's something to think about. In your long, long years in service of the United States, you must have had times when you are at loggerheads with U.S. policy. You've actually touched on one such. Mm. Um, or particularly with your bosses. And this is, mm. this is really for uh, younger diplomats and diplomats wannabes. With so many international conflicts in the headlines, how did you or do you handle such situations? Well, there are two that come to mind. One uh, was the Iran-Contra crisis when Reagan was in office. I was in Turkey at the time. I was terribly, terribly embarrassed and devastated and wondered, how was I going to even meet my counterparts in Turkey after that? And then, fortunately, I had developed the kind of rapport with my Turkish counterparts, where they understood that I might not be able to speak as candidly in front of the microphone as I would with them informally. And they came to trust me. And I think they trusted my, my candor. And I never found myself on the front page of the papers being called out for having said something that was against U.S. policy. And yet I know I gave that subtle message. I just knew I could not go against my conscience. It wasn't easy. 
several times. The anti-Americanism was very, very high when I was in Greece, and some of it may have been justified. But again, a lot of the perceptions people have of a nation around the world nowadays is based upon what is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the Internet. I'm not saying television. So you really have to work at that face-to-face contact and the development of a, a sincere and genuine relationship to counter all that is seen. And it takes an incredible amount of patience. Diplomacy cannot be successful overnight. I would like to describe what happened when I went to Senegal for their first presidential election. I arrive in Senegal just before there is going to be a presidential election. I'm informed that I must meet with all the members of the opposition party. You can imagine many didn't want to come to the embassy, and I understood that, so they met at the residence. But the then Minister of Interior uh, had a briefing describing how the ballots were going to be printed in Israel so that they couldn't be falsified or replicated or reproduced without changing the color of the paper, and that the journalists were indeed going to be monitoring very carefully from various and sundry posts using their cell phones. And they had been part of a training of journalists in ethics that the U.S. Information Agency had been doing for 28 years. They began that program when I was a junior diplomat 28 years earlier in Senegal. You can imagine how I felt that it really was vindication of the patience and the stick to of the career diplomats who had been working in that press section because that election went off without a hitch because any indiscretions were called in by the journalists from the various villages around Senegal, it was a model, and I was so pleased to have seen the fruits of one's labor 28 years later. You're listening to Afrobeat Radio. I am Wee Jacobs. I am talking to Ambassador Harriet Lee Ellen Thomas, the author of the autobiography Diversifying Diplomacy, My Journey from Roxbury to Dakar. Ambassador Harriet Lee Ellen Thomas has served the United States in diplomatic capacities for several decades. Recently, the nation's top career diplomat decided to step down. This is someone you know, and it comes as many career diplomats have stepped down and in a time of international crisis. Tell us about Tom Shannon, who was one of the only two people with the title career ambassador. What does his living mean to the Department of State. It is perhaps the most sobering news that I learned on, I think it was February 1st, because I've met Tom Shannon a very few times, only because I'm not physically in Washington. I'm in Orlando and teaching here. But if there was one individual who had a reputation among the majority of career foreign service and civil service officers, that is stellar. Tom Shannon is that person. And that's pretty high praise these days. He truly had a sincere commitment to diversity writ large, whether it was race, gender orientation, religion, you name it. He was often a speaker at what is called the Thursday Luncheon Group. That is the Black American Foreign Service Officers and Civil Service Officers Organization, now 40 years old. And Tom Shannon is the person we thank for having reinstated the incoming July and September 2017 A100 course. That is the course for brand-new diplomats. One of my students, Nicholas Grandchamp, of Haitian descent, is a Wrangell Fellow, Pickering and Wrangell Fellows, receive a two-year fellowship to complete graduate studies in international affairs. And then they are, 
to become career diplomats for five years before they have to take the final oral exam. They had signed a contract with the U.S. government, and the Department of State was going to reduce not only the budget, but cancel the incoming class. Thanks to also support from Capitol Hill and career retirees like myself, the Academy of Diplomacy, the Black American Ambassadors Association, and the support of Tom Shannon, who had the daily access to walk into the Secretary of State's office. It was reinstated, of course. So what does it mean if others are leaving the diplomatic service? It is not a very pretty or encouraging picture. September 21st, I flew to Washington for the retirement of three senior African-American diplomats, Joyce Barr, Teddy Taylor, and Linda Thomas-Greenfield. The three of them took, as they left, a total a comp- compilation of 113 years of diplomatic experience that cannot be replaced overnight. There are not enough people in the pipeline to reach the senior levels of our service. I consider them kind of some of my mentees because I'm 10 years older than they are. It was sobering when Lyndon Thomas Greenfield said, I might have stayed. She was the Assistant Secretary for African Affairs and a former Director General of the Foreign Service. She said, I might have stayed, but I did not see a sincere commitment to diversity. It takes, as I said, about 25 years to even be eligible to become a deputy chief of mission at an embassy or to be even on a list to become a chief of mission, meaning ambassador. At this point, I just read an article in the New York Times which stated that 60% of the U.S. diplomats in the Foreign Service have a decade of experience, 10 years of experience. That is not a large number of people to be moving up the pipeline. So there's this huge gap. Absolutely. You acknowledge in the book Diversifying Diplomacy that much has changed in the Foreign Service since your time. Mm-hmm. Now there's bidding for diplomatic posts, which wasn't the way it was when you joined the service. The political polarity of the world has shifted since your time, both at home and abroad. Mm-hmm. At home, let's think about the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. as a point of reference. You grew up during the time of the civil rights movement. Yes. Abroad, it was the Cold War. Now it's global terrorism. What has your long experience in diplomacy taught you about shifts and wins in global politics? That each of these movements have meaning. They have credibility. They may not change a society overnight. Uh, Black Lives Matter, the Arab Spring, uh, I look at everything, as you might suspect, with a global perspective. They have played an important role in sensitizing the world to what has transpired both in the United States and certainly in the Middle East and Arab nations. We also, in my view, are far more open to the views of the current population of, we call them millennials. There is a um, a need for all of us to listen to what the young men and women are saying because we might say, oh, Black Lives Matter is a domestic issue. No, it isn't, because the military is made up of a significant number of people of color. The diplomatic service is not yet, but we cannot be credible representatives of a country that its diplomatic service does not look like its citizens. I have not been able to get a feel for what the men and women who are in our missions abroad now are hearing about the world's view 
of the Black Lives Matter movement as opposed to the global war and terrorism right after 9-11. I do think that the department has learned its lesson in terms of the use of language and the power of the word, and so they are far more careful in crafting how they wish to deliver a message to our host governments when we're posted abroad. But there is also a problem in terms of our now using new technology to deliver a message, but are we listening to what they're saying in return? That is an issue. But I truly believe that the terminologies that we use will have significant impact. And if we're not careful how we craft our message, we may deliver the wrong message. Listening, um, that's very important. It's one of the things that you describe in the book as a necessary quality for a good or successful diplomat. Absolutely. We live in a world now that everyone has a lot to say, especially our young people, as you you have referenced. Yes. Uh, For a young fellow considering a career path, what are the key qualities they need to cultivate to qualify for consideration in the foreign service? First, do not take yourself so seriously. Do not try to superimpose your values on another culture. Be willing to listen to their perspective on an issue, whether it has to do with America's view towards Middle East, Asia, Africa, or Latin America. Then process it, and then offer your input. But before you do that, you have to recognize that you need to be sensitive to that other culture. We do a better job now of training young diplomats in the Foreign Service Institute in the language as well as the literature and the arts of a culture. We did not always do that. So, for instance, when I learned Greek and when I learned Turkish, one day a week for 44 weeks, we were required to know something about the literature, the music, and the arts of those cultures, because that would help us be far more effective in delivering our message once we were abroad. So my advice to a young man or woman considering careers in the diplomatic service is to be like a sponge, to be open, sensitive, non-judgmental when interacting with their hosts or with individuals from a different culture for the very first time. So what are the differences between the foreign service or between being a diplomat mm-hmm. and being a spy? There's a significant difference. Although I can tell you my family, even way back when, they just knew you were working for the Central Intelligence Agency when you went overseas, or my father thought I was working for the F- Foreign Legion. I would quickly say that your work is totally above board. Everything you say or do as a diplomat is going to be available to your counterparts directly through the media. There would never be any uh, surreptitious taping of a conversation. And they would know by your actions and how you comported yourself that you are a career diplomat and not in the intelligence agency. It is. Um, it would be very hard for me to, uh, I should say, characterize some other things without going into what might be classified information. Because, yes, it's no secret, every embassy has a section which has its role of collecting intelligence. And to be very honest with you, the Foreign Service nationals, the locally engaged staff, all know who those people are. It is no longer a secret. But when you are the press attache, the cultural attache, you're the political officer, the embassy knows what your role is, and you can be sure it is reinforced by the host culture what you do. So you're 
working with a very straightforward above-board plate. I don't want to give too much away about the book so that readers can find their own nuggets. Uh, uh-huh. Talk about a diplomatic experience that you did not write about that helps us bridge the gap between what we see and read about and the reality behind the scenes. I remember going to an event in Greece after I had arrived, recently after my arrival. I was maybe in the country three or four weeks. And although I'd passed my Greek exam, I wasn't quite sure that I could handle an evening dinner conversation in Greek. And it was held at the home of a member of the Greek Academy, in essence the equivalent of the French Académie Française. I was absolutely mortified when the ambassador said, you will be going. And much to my joy, I arrived and learned that most of the Greeks who were there were of a certain age, and they were equally fluent in French. But they were dealing with, again, why America had taken its position, a position that was totally counter to what the Greeks had felt was proper. And here I am, a brand-new diplomat, trying to sort of calm the waters And I think by the way in which I discussed the issue, they knew that I was at least conversant with it. I wasn't there just to deal with the arts and the paintings, but that I had a substantive role at the embassy. And believe it or not, this is at a dinner party. Much work is done in social settings as opposed to in a meeting or in a negotiation. And I think I was effective in delivering a message that I might not have been able to do if I were not, one, fluent in the language, and two, I'll be, again, very candid with you. I was the only person of color in the room, so I was unique. It was a cur- I was a curiosity. Do they really know that much about U.S. foreign policy? And can she really speak French? Well, the proof is in the pudding and in the action and I was able to perform. So that's not a deep foreign policy issue per se, but that's that's giving you a little background. Um, Diplomacy is not all cocktail parties and receptions. Uh, I spoke in the book about, I think, American being accused of feeding PKK terrorists in Turkey. You're listening to Afrobeat Radio. I am Wee Jacobs, and I'm talking to Ambassador Harriet Lee Elam-Thomas. What narratives existed when you entered service and what now exist about African-American participation in American diplomacy? How, in your experience, are African-American diplomats viewed by the rest of the world or, let's say, at least by your foreign counterparts? And has this changed over time? It certainly has. In the days I was growing up, Ebony Magazine certainly made us aware of how African diplomats were treated with such respect and dignity that many leaders in the civil rights movement did not receive. And that was something that was drawing a schism between the two groups. Uh, My parents would host students who were at Boston University or Harvard from Nigeria, Ghana, uh, Liberia, all of whom somehow knew one another, and we thought that was amazing. Um, we also learned so much from that, the interactions that we had at Thanksgiving dinners when we would have students come to our home. Well, I should say no. When a black diplomat was sent abroad in the early days, in the 60s and 70s, they were perceived as less than valid representatives of the United States because of the history of anyone of color being considered a second-class citizen in the United States. So I saw that with some of the elders who are now in their late 80s and 90s, for whom I have and had and still have the greatest respect. Uh, That has changed. I remember Ambassador Todman saying that when he went to Spain, they thought that the fax machine had made an error because the picture of this person just didn't show up on the fax. This is in the days of faxes or the fastest way of communication. 
And yet when he got there, he was treated with such respect because he truly had done his homework. He was well-versed in the history of Spain. We, he served as ambassador to seven different nations. He died four years ago, and I went to speak with another very revered colleague of ours, Ambassador Ruth Davis, who is a four-star general, a career ambassador, who is an African-American woman of color, graduate of Spelman. She is noted in the very first chapter of my book where we talk about Phoenix rising. In any case, today I see a greater acceptance of African-American diplomats I think that I was very effective in Turkey and Greece because they saw someone who knew what it was like to be considered not quite equal to the rest. And these were countries that wanted either to be in the European Union. Turkey still has not become a member of the European Union. But they felt that I was a far better representative of America and could take their story back to the United States with credibility. The other is that the intelligence services have taught the State Department what the Defense Department and the intelligence services knew. How do you infiltrate a potential terrorist organization or cell if you are blonde-haired and blue-eyed and you're in Asia, Africa, or Latin America, or in the Middle East? You cannot do that. So you had better be willing to recognize the importance of the diversity that America has that has made it great and use that to the fullest so that you can better protect the national security of this country. One of the stories that we've just been talking about that you touched on, one of those stories that I learned from, you know, talking to elders, is that of African students being hosted by African Americans in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me that your parents' generation had such strong affinity with Africa. Oh, only because I was this young kid that was around and and said, Mommy and Daddy, no, it wasn't their initiative. It was, I thought, Mommy, this would be exciting to do. So we'll save my money. I remember I was an escort interpreter, actually, and I saved my per diem so that we could host them at our church because... Otherwise, we would not have had enough money. No, I wouldn't say that my parents did this. Uh, they did this as this young child that they had many years later kept them involved in world affairs. Although my father, they came to see me in France, and my father had fought in World War One, and he was thrilled to walk down the streets of Paris and see the city. And they must have been there 60s or 70s then. That was 1965. My, long time ago. But my parents were open to what many things that I suggested. They may have wondered why they they allowed this child to go abroad, and she came back with liking wine and thinking that she could have wine at home. I wasn't quite 21, and of course I did not have any wine at home. But um, I opened their eyes, and I think I helped open the eyes of the community in Roxbury to a world beyond the confines of the U.S., I'm sure you have many, many more stories to tell. At a very young age, you worked at the Nixon White House, worked and lived in Paris. Mm-hmm. At the height of your career as ambassador, you were in Dakar, Senegal, and worked in several African countries in other roles. You have also worked in other diplomatic roles. Which of these roles was most formative in and for your career in, in the Foreign Service? I would say my very first assignment in Senegal and then on to Mali and Cote d'Ivoire. I was proud of the fact that I had a brother who was the fourth black judge and became chief justice. But I went to Cote d'Ivoire and the entire Supreme Court was black. That gave me a sense of pride that at 28 or 29, I never had growing up in Boston. I came back and gave a speech about that in 1977 at Simmons College. I said, we have a lot to learn because there are countries around the world that have leaders who are black. I'm speaking in a school where I was one of four black students in 59 through 63. Um, It was a revelation for me. It It changed my view of the world 
and I learned that America was not the only place in the greatest place on the planet. Which of those postings did you enjoy the most? Your question is one that I receive very often, and I can be very candid and say to you, each one was so different that they left a very important feeling in my mind and my heart, and I don't have a favorite. Not even Dakar. I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to compare twice. Dakar to Senegal to um, France to Paris, but I mean. uh, Paris is still one of my favorite cities. But um, it has there are other issues in France as well, especially yeah. now. And even then, I noticed that everybody was cleaning the streets was from North Africa yeah. and in the metro. And yeah. this is again back in the mid to late sixties. I do think that Senegal had a very special place. Why? Because the women and men carried themselves with such pride. Now, I must say I have not lived or worked in English-speaking Africa. I've only served in what may not be considered a politically correct thing to say nowadays, Francophone Africa. But the pride with which the men and women carried themselves instilled a sense of pride in this young black woman that she never had growing up in Roxbury, Massachusetts. I assure you that it's our loss that you did not get an opportunity to serve uh, in an English Oh, indeed. State. I think so. I've traveled. I've been to Tanzania, <laughs> Kenya, only to the airport in Nigeria. Uh-huh. Uh, Botswana, I've been to visit and, and to South Africa. I've been to Botswana once, South Africa twice, and uh, to Tanzania and Kenya. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. I've not been to Ghana. There was a coup in the Cote d'Ivoire just as I was going, so I didn't get to go. If you had to do it all over again, Mm -hmm. are are there things that you would consider doing differently? I must admit, yes. Um, I made the mistake of being a little too democratic in societies that are very, very structured and hierarchical both in Cote d'Ivoire and in Mali as well. I didn't understand, because remember, I was much younger, the role that position played no matter where you were in the pecking order, because I thought everybody should do whatever was needed. I would make copies, and they were mortified that the cultural attaché would get up from her desk and make copies or... Someone in Cote d'Ivoire said to me, I could have been your friend, but you democratize everything. I may have mentioned in the book that I invited the drivers as well as the programmers in Cote d'Ivoire to sit with me in a planning meeting for a visitor who was going to be speaking throughout Abidjan. She said, I don't sit in a room with drivers. Now, here I'm saying to myself, what is wrong with this room? He's going to pick up the speaker. He's bilingual. But... At that age, I didn't understand that I couldn't superimpose my values of what I thought was right and democratic in some other society. So I I had to become far more sensitive to those things. Uh, and I wouldn't have done what I did early on, you know, breaking my neck to be sure. I, I um, tried to help in every which way I could when, in fact, the dignity of the office was so important in that part of the world that I could have destroyed my own credibility. I learned. I didn't do that later. I was still humble. I was still accessible, but I had to carry myself in a very different way. I could not have a friendship that was not a professional one. And I learned, but if I had it to do over again, I would have studied more about the history of how a society a traditional society functions. And Lord knows, I didn't get that when I was growing up in Simmons College in Boston. Thank you very much for making time to speak to us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on Africa Radio. Well, it was a pleasure to interact with you and Kathy Davis, and I thank you ever so much for inviting me, and I wish you significant success on the Pledge Drive. Your work is very much needed valuable to our society and I commend you for your commitment to helping improve the quality of life for all of us. Thank you, ma'am. All the best. Thank you very much. You're very welcome.
We've been talking to Ambassador Harriet Lee L.F. Thomas, the author of the autobiography, Diversifying Diplomacy, My Journey from Roxbury to Dakar. Many thanks to Cheryl Duncan and as well to Kathy Davis and Wuyi Jacobs 